If you brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if um, how about if you open that up to the Book of Acts? Really glad you're here today. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, you, you may look ahead at a passage. You know, we left off verse 11 last week. If you're new here, we're we're just starting a, a study in the Book of Acts, and uh, last week we made it through a chapter of chapter one, verse 11. And today we're picking up at verse 12. And if you read ahead, you may be looking at this as, wow, it's going to be pretty hard material. There's like the suicide and it's really gross. And there's um, this death of Judas. And how are we going to get anything out of that? Um, Well, I'm here to tell you God's word can speak through even that. And I want you to know very clearly if, if you're going through a hard thing right now in your life, Maybe you came in this morning with something really, really difficult bearing down on you. I think this is especially for you. Uh, Many times I ask God just to show me what He wants me to teach for whomever is coming in. And I think specifically, if you've got a hard thing in your life right now, God means this for you. So here's where we left off at last week. We left off with the ascension. Um, big church word for meaning Jesus was lifted up from the ground literally in the front of the eyes of the disciples and was returned to God the Father in heaven. So we're going to pick up with that ascension because we want to see why. But before we do that, I want to pray with you. So let's join together in prayer. Father, we believe and we are confident in our statement that your Holy Spirit is already here. I can sense him in the room, and because your, your followers are here, those who believe in you are here, your Spirit is present. You've promised us that your Holy Spirit would indwell us, so what we would ask for is that you would use the Holy Spirit who is present to be our teacher and our guide, and allow us to encounter you in ways that perhaps we haven't before. Speak now, Father. Speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we we left off with Jesus saying, here's why I'm going back to the Father. And it comes right from John 16, 7. Jesus' own words, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And we understand where we're going next week, going into Acts chapter 2. It's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point where the church is just exploded. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. But he tells them they've got to wait. They've seen the ascension. They've got to wait 10 more days. The church is going to launch forward with momentum. But in the meantime, wait. So we might ask ourselves, if Jesus has ascended and he's before the Father, what's he doing right now? The disciples had to be thinking that same thing. He's gone out of their sight what's going on? They've just been told to wait. Well, we understand, and I'll lean back into our study of Hebrews last year that some of you were here for. We know specifically from Hebrews 1.3 where Jesus is. It says this, Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. When the Bible says the right hand of God, it's talking about the power position, the position of honor, the, the place of God's strength. So Jesus is there. What's he doing? At this moment in time, the mediatorial kingdom begins. By that, I mean this. Jesus intercedes for you. He is your mediator between you and God the Father. 
We see that specifically in Scripture, Hebrews 8.1. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 1 Timothy goes on to elaborate what he's doing there. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. So what he's doing at this time while you're here today, Jesus is at the right hand of God intervening for you. So that means to us that from God's view, you are seen today through the lens of Jesus. God sees you through Him. It's what, it's what you are in Christ, not what you've done in your past that defines you. In other words, you are forgiven because of what Jesus did. So you're defined this morning by your walk with Jesus, not by your history, not by your past mistakes, but who you are today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God sees you through Him. Your strength this morning is your mediator. You will fall, but that falling doesn't have to define you. God sees you through Jesus And he says, you're holy. So this morning, I'm here to tell you, you are who God says you are. And God says you're forgiven. I think that's so significant, we should say that together. I think on on three, we should say, I'm forgiven. One, two, three. I'm forgiven. Oh, well done. I mean, Saturday night, I had to make them repeat it twice, okay? okay? You believe it. Obviously, you own it. I am forgiven. That is so significant as you move forward into this story. I told you the book of Acts is all about stories. Well, you're going to see a story this morning. So let's transition over to the upper room, keeping that thought in mind of what I just shared with you. It's very real that we understand we're forgiven because these individuals you're about to see in the upper room have all failed Jesus in some way. Some have not believed Him. Some have not trusted Him. Some have not followed him fully. Some didn't believe he had their best interest at heart. They've all failed in some way. And now they find themselves without their king. He's gone. They can't see him anymore. The angels actually had to say to them, hey, stop looking into the sky. He's coming back again. You've got to return back to Jerusalem. Do what you were told to do. So there's some degree of tension here in this story. There's a spiritual storm brewing. Jesus is like their meteorologist. He says, there's something coming, and it's big, and you've got to be prepared for it. But in the meantime, wait. So what do we find them doing when we open up verse 12? They're in prayer. They go to prayer because it's the quiet before the storm. In prayer for what, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I'm thinking they're praying specifically for God's kingdom to come. I think they're praying for God's power to be released. I think they're praying for God's wisdom for God's direction, for God's blessing. Warren Wearsby looked at this passage here, and I found his quote, and I just wanted to share it with you. He said this, Prayer is both the thermometer and the thermostat of the church, for the spiritual temperature either goes up or down, depending on how God's people pray. So these people are in obedience and in anticipation. They return to Jerusalem, and here's a problem. They lack the full number of what they need. I'll explain that in just a minute. Go with me to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. So Luke is helping Theophilus. Remember, he's writing this letter to Theophilus. He's helping him geographically. 
Theophilus doesn't know Israel's geography, so he tells them where they've been and where they've been located. It's very significant that he says that they're a Sabbath day journey away. You lean back into what I talked about a couple weeks ago on Shabbat rest, meaning there was a certain distance they could go on Sabbath day, which was only three-quarters of a mile. So they're three-quarters of a mile from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem, and they're coming to the upper room. Now, this upper room is significant It was common in Israel to have three-story homes. First floor, cooking, kitchen area. Second floor, sleeping area. Third floor, that's the terrace. That's where the portico is at. You live in the hot Mediterranean sun, you want a place where you can get out of the sun, but yet catch the breeze. That's the third floor. That's the dining room. That's where people go to study. Many times wealthy families, if they had a big enough upper room, they would rent it out to area rabbis who would bring their students there to study. So this upper room is a place that they're very familiar with. We're told they go back to the upper room in the next verse. This is probably the same upper room where the Last Supper was held. Go with me to the next verse, verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. That is not Judas Iscariot. That is not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. He's going to come up in just a minute. This is a different Judas. So when they enter Jerusalem, they go upstairs. The steps are on the outside of the house. Apparently, this is a very big space because you're going to find out it can hold 120 people. Here's what I want you to consider. Consider who's there. This is the A-list. These are the pillars of the Bible. They didn't know they're A-listers. They didn't know they're the who's who. This is like a gathering at the Declaration of Independence. You've got Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John Hancock. They didn't know they're A-listers, but we look back on them today and say, wow, what a gathering. Well, the same thing is true with this gathering. They had no idea who they were going to become because of Jesus working through them. This is an amazing mixture of this first assembly of believers. We're told in verse 14 that Jesus' own biological brothers are there. I don't know if you knew that Jesus had brothers. These would be his half-brothers, his step-brothers. Two are very significant to us, James and Jude, or Judas, another Judas. James, who wrote in your Bible the book of James. Judas, who wrote the book of Jude in your Bible. Those are Jesus' half-brothers. These individuals became believers, apparently at some point after they got over their skepticism, because only eight months before the crucifixion, they didn't believe. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen. John 7, 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, their conversion is not recorded in Scripture, but here's what I surmise. As a result of the resurrection... It's indisputable. What are they going to do with it? Matter of fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians, Jesus showed up after the resurrection and began talking to James. It says this, 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. It's his brother, James. Oh, who else is there? Verse 14 says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. It's the last time you ever find her mentioned in the Bible. Tradition says that she went with John As John established churches from church to church to church around the Middle East, she moved with him. Here's the background, though. No one in that room thought, I'm great. 
No one thought they were an A-lister. No one thought they're the who's who. There was a time when they did, though, church. There was a time when the disciples were fighting over who is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus had to shut them down and say, it is not up to you guys to decide that. They were actually close to going to blows, if you read the passage, over who gets to sit on his right hand and who gets to sit on his left hand. That egocentric about who they were, that's all gone. That's not here now. These individuals who have gathered have gone through some strokes of humility, if you will. Move forward with me into the next verse, 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they're all there. They're all in the upper room, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Two primary characteristics of the church. Got one mind, they got unity, and they're in prayer. So this community of Jesus followers going to prayer mode. What are they praying about? Here's what I think specifically. Matthew 6, verse 1. Lord, will you teach us how to pray? Well, when you pray, this is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. What specifically had they just asked for at the ascension? Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Kingdom is on their mind. I I think the kingdom is a strong theme here, as you're going to see in this text. They want the kingdom to come. So they're gathered together with one mind, and we're told they've got spiritual unity, which is huge. Unity within the church is so significant, church. How easy is it, New Hope, to bring division into the church? Now, some of you are brand new to church. You won't understand what I'm talking about. But some of you have been in church for years, and I don't mean at New Hope. Maybe you've transitioned here from another church, and you've seen the political infighting that can take place within a church. Let's transfer that thought over to this setting. Somebody could have said to Peter, you denied him three times. What about the family? You guys called him crazy. John and James, they could have said, well, you're only, you're only interested in prestige. You wanted a seat next to him on the kingdom. John could have said, well, I stood at the cross alone. None of you guys were there. What about Thomas? You're a doubter. I mean, that's where the phrase came from, doubting Thomas, right? That is not present here. They're all of one mind of one accord. No one's arguing anymore over who's the greatest. This amazing unity binds them together. Why? Because they have the task that you and I have. They have the responsibility to be a witness to a world that's hostile towards the things of Jesus. They've got no time for bickering. So these individuals can't do the job alone. As a matter of fact, some of them are going to die within a couple years for the persecution for the church. And from this little nucleus of people of one mind, the church is about to explode. Move forward with me into what is a very ugly passage. If you haven't read it before, I just want you to give a heads up. It's violent, it's gross, and yet it's compelling. Verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, was there together and said, now remember, this is within the context of prayer. 
They've been praying with one mind, and in that moment, apparently God gave Peter clarity, and he leans back into the Old Testament. It says this, verse 16, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. You want to talk about a theological mouthful? He's just talked about the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of Scripture and David and prophecy all within two sentences. What's going on here? Peter's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's acting to alleviate doubts about the Judas factor. What do we do with Judas? This ugly situation. Now, no doubt this is on their mind. They're living this day in and day out. Judas has just recently turned Jesus over to betray him. This is very fresh stuff. Can you imagine in this setting here? We're way more than 120 this morning, but can you imagine if one of our number was guilty of turning Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion? How palpable would that be? That's what they're living with here. This is what's on their mind. So this is the question. How, how does the Judas thing fit into God's plan? There were 12 of us, now there's 11. We weren't going forward, going backward. We lost one. How could he do this? Now, even though there's been treachery, even though there's been deceit, the arrest of Jesus actually plays into God's word into God's plan. The betrayal actually is a fulfillment of God's purposes. And it's a hard thing. It's ugly. And they're wading through it. It's kind of like sewage. The, The Judas factor is this. God allows hard things into our life, even if we can't figure it out. Even if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean that's any less true. Here's a a little reading between the lines for you. Let's just see if we agree on this point first. God's word is always accomplished. Would you agree with that? God says this, my word will not go forth and go forward without accomplishing the reason for which I sent it forth. My word will not return to me void is what God actually says. So if we agree on that point, we would say God's word is always accomplished. We'd have to say even the ugly things, even the hard things, things that we would rather not be there. So the Judas factor has to be allowed for, meaning God knew it. God allowed it. And God used it. And it's ugly if, if your perspective is this morning that God only allows the things which make for you to be happy and clappy, you've you got to do something with the Judas factor. Matter of fact, the Judas factor is threaded all the way through Scripture. There's constantly times when there's hard, ugly things. Here's the mystery in this paragraph. We would want to say, Luke, why go to so much effort to describe an event which appears to have very little impact on the momentum of the church? Rather, we might want to step up point further and say, why are you dredging that back up? It's so ugly. Here's how we answer this. We answer it through a little observation. We know already that prayer, prayer in unity, is what triggered Peter to stand up. 120 people who were the who's who of the Bible. 
are joined together in prayer. And in the midst of that prayer, Peter stands up and begins quoting the Old Testament. And he begins leaning back into Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which are times when David was going through really, really hard things. And in that moment, we find Peter quoting David. This is a light bulb moment. He recognizes instantly Judas's betrayal was part of the plan. So Peter begins to use Scripture to assure everyone that's in the room, Judas's desertion is all part of the bigger picture, even though they can't see it clearly in the moment. Now, mind you, they're in the same room where Jesus turned to Judas and said, what you do, go and do quickly. And we're told the very next thing that Judas did was get up and left them, and Satan entered into him, and he turned Jesus over for the crucifixion. God knew it. God understood exactly what was going on. It did not catch him off guard. The betrayal of Jesus was no accident. The betrayer, what Scripture calls the son of perdition, is someone that they called friend. They they stood in the atrium and ate oatmeal cookies with him. You tracking with me? This is a guy they sat down with, they laughed with, they talked with. So Peter's really clear in verse 17. He said, this one was counted among us. But hear me on this. He was never saved. He was never a believer. He never put his confidence and trust in Jesus. So he didn't truly believe what we would call today a spectator Christian. And the church is full of them. People who show up for the entertainment factor. What can I get out of it? But there's no relationship. Jesus said this himself, that there were these individuals who did not believe. Jesus said in John 6, there are some of you who do not believe. Matter of fact, he went on a little bit further in verse 64 and clarified it. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Very, very clearly, God did not force Judas' hand. Judas had a choice to believe or not to believe. He carried out his own will because he has free will, just like you and I. But did God use the hard thing to accomplish his purpose? Absolutely. Can I back that up from Scripture? You bet. Acts 2, verse 23, it says this, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter went on to say to the Jewish people at that time, you crucified him. But he was delivered over because God knew in advance. It was God's plan. It was his purpose to allow this hard thing to happen. So this guy with rare privilege given to only 12 people in the history of the world of all the billions who walk our planet right now and the billions who have gone before us, 12 have had the privilege of walking, talking, living, sleeping, eating, learning from Jesus. And one of the 12 said, I'm out. I don't want it. He had the same opportunity they had, but he didn't get what he wanted And so he betrayed the Son of God. Verse 19 is where it gets really gross. 18, now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. 
And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Helkeladama, that is, the field of blood. Dr. Luke takes a moment just to clarify for Theophilus and for us something that we needed to know, even though it's gross. Judas is feeling unbearable guilt He's betrayed innocent blood, and this perverse behavior has climaxed in a suicide. But let's set Judas aside. Think about Peter. He's the one that's talking about this. For him, this had to be a horrific reminder of his own betrayal. He had failed Jesus. What's the difference? Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. A lot of curse words that were thrown in there along with it according to Scripture. He wanted to convince people. He had nothing to do with it. So what's the difference? Jesus not only sought Peter out and restored him, but Peter received the restoration from his mediator the one who intervened on his behalf, the one who restores and intervenes on our behalf. Judas had no relationship. Peter rises to the occasion. Could he have wallowed in that failure? Absolutely. Did he? No. So let me float a question out there for you. Would God forgive Judas if he had asked? I'll let you chew on that for just a minute. Oh, we'll come back to that. See, in God's view, it's not what you've done in your past. It's who you are in Jesus that defines you. You are forgiven. Your forgiveness defines you by your walk with Jesus. So you're not defined by your weakness this morning. You're not defined by your failures. You're defined by your strength, and your strength is in your mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the power side of God. Judas never had the relationship. Therefore, he couldn't even allow the possibility of forgiveness to enter into his mind. And so he does what he can think of in his carnal mind. He kills himself. But his problem is eternity lays before him. Peter's going to speak to that in just a moment. This is Peter's quote from the Old Testament, verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Leaning back into David, because David is specifically talking about how wicked men had come against him at this point in time. Verse 21 is very clear about what they need to do. Verse 21, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Why did they feel it necessary to replace Judas? And what's so big about the number 12? Well, understand that what you're about to see next week when we get to Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit plays into this number 12. The number 12 is very significant with the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, it's a symbolic number. Go back to the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a 1 to 10 ratio in Israel. The Sanhedrin is made up of 120 members of the Supreme Court. 1 to 10 ratio, one man to represent each 10. 
the number 12 is huge in the mind of Israel. What did God call the disciples to do first? You will be my witnesses in, where church? Jerusalem. And then Judea. And then Samaria. Jerusalem first, where the Jewish people are at. So you're going to be my witness. And therefore, they had to keep things in order. What they're doing is taking down barriers. Any reasons why people would not want to listen to them. So what you'll see next week is 12 men who will stand up to speak to the 12 tribes of Israel in different tongues, explaining the kingdom of God. Now that's one reason why the number 12 is so important. But here's another reason. Jesus' own words. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus said, Hey, you guys, you who are following me, you're going to get 12 thrones in heaven. Let's look at the way he said it in Matthew 19, 28. You who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones. That's pretty hard to do when you only have 11 guys. So you've got to have 12. But one other reason. In Revelation, John said, I looked and I saw the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And there were 12 gates. And on those 12 gates were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And those gates sat on foundation stones. And on those foundation stones were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty hard to do if you only have 11. So they're fulfilling Scripture here. You see, just in a couple of years, when James is martyred, Jesus' brother, he's killed for the sake of the gospel, they don't replace him. Why? Because the witness to Israel has already taken place. They fulfilled what they're supposed to do. So Peter's very specific in verse 21 and 22. He says, this guy whom we choose, he's got to be a witness to the resurrection, and he has to have experienced Jesus' life from the baptism to the ascension. Remember, above all, they're to be witnesses, right? So we get this detail in verse 23. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That last phrase is shocking because he's using a Hebrew euphemism. He has turned aside to go to hell. Judas' fate is sealed. He's denied Jesus. He's turned aside to go to his own place. Would Jesus forgive Judas? I know it's a bit of semantics to play through something that happened 2,000 years ago, but let's phrase it this way. Is it in the nature and character of our God to forgive? Absolutely. Would God forgive Judas? Absolutely. If he had sought it, if the relationship was there if he had desired to recognize Jesus as his mediator, his source of mediation. He's not a believer, so he rejects the Lord of glory. And Judas, according to Peter's own words, goes to his own place, goes to hell because he's rejected Jesus. The last detail comes from verse 26, and we close. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, And he was added to the 11 apostles. The the replacement of Judas is just a really, really ancient Old Testament way of finding God's purposes. 
um, it's, it's kind of like we roll the dice today or shoot craps, okay? That, that's, that's what's going on here. They, they're rolling the dice because here's what they believed, that God would always determine the outcome. But from this point forward, throughout the rest of the New Testament, you never find anybody throwing lots again because from this point forward, the Holy Spirit guides them and leads them and shows them people of capacity to do this kind of work. So don't be put off by the, cho- the chance element that you see there. The outcome's determined by God. Here's where I come out of this text with understanding and with a reminder. My understanding coming out of this is God allows some ugly things. He does. He allows some hard things to happen which accomplish his purposes. He uses hard things when people choose wrong things. And to be honest with you, that far surpasses our human perspective. That the disciples didn't understand it is evident. They go to prayer. And in the midst of prayer, God makes it clear for Peter. This is why it happened. It's fulfilling Scripture. But here's what Acts reminds me of. More significant perhaps than even that. This passage and these stories that you're about to learn of over the weeks ahead, they're not representations of God choosing the best, the brightest, or the most godly, or even the sharpest knives in the drawer. They're not. They're weak and fallible people just like us, but they're people who are forgiven, and they know who their mediator is, and they're willing to yell out with New Hope Church, I'm forgiven. That's me. See, it's not about us. It's about God. God was really clear to me this week that he wanted me to close with this verse I'm about to share with you, which leans way back into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, as a reminder for all of us. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, say it together with me, church, boast in the Lord. Who's your confidence in? Your mediator. It's not about who's the best and the brightest or who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's about the mediator who's interceding for us. So your weaknesses, your past, they don't define you. God sees you through your mediator as one who is forgiven. Is that a great way to go out the door? It's a great way for me to go out the door. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I ask right now you would seal it in our heart even when the accuser comes against us and tells us we failed again. Let these words be true of us, Father, that we we recognize that we are forgiven. While we may fall and stumble, remind us that we are forgiven. When we lean back into our past mistakes, remind us that we are forgiven. Send us out now, Father, with your blessing for having studied your word. It's in Jesus' mighty name we thank you and pray. And God's people said,
Amen.